Our text this morning, this morning's sermon is Luke 11, verses 42 through 54. Luke 11, 42 through 54. And I'll, beginning, or I'll begin by reading a verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and are the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Father, as we come to these words from Christ, this account when he was eating in this Pharisee's house. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you give us love for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you protect us from deceivers. And Father, I pray that you protect us from the deceptions of our own hearts that we might not be hypocrites, Lord. God, I ask that you might draw us to you this morning. For those who've never known you in a personal way, who's never been changed, the miracle of the new birth that's never been done, God, I ask that you might do that this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we watch the news, as you turn on the television, whether you watch a 24-hour news channel 
or just the local news, the thing that we see most often is evidences of wickedness and brokenness in our society. It's like a never-ending story. It almost seems like the same story every day, a little bit different circumstances. And then we have the experts that begin debating what needs to be done that this world can get better and that this world can change. Debating about what laws should be changed. It would be better maybe if we get rid of the guns. One person argues. Someone else argues, no, it would be safer if everyone had a gun. It would be safer if this politician got in or if that politician got in. It's like never-ending examples of brokenness and sin and what should be done about it. And yet, all the debate, all the laws cannot get to the root of the problem. In fact, a law cannot change anybody on the inside. A law can restrain evil in the sense someone that's ready to commit evil might look at the consequences and not commit it, but the evil desire to commit it cannot be changed by one law that God gives or that man makes up. Parents, you can make rule after rule after rule for your children. And those rules may be able to restrain the evil in your children's heart, but it cannot fix the evil that's in your children's hearts. In 1 John 5.19, here's how John views the world. Here's how God views the world as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write this. He says, we know that we are from God, the Christians, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. The picture is this. We know that we're from God. We've seen the light. We've trusted Christ. But the whole world is in the lap of Satan, the destroyer of souls, a murderer, and he's put them to sleep. The word lies means recline comfortably. The whole world reclines comfortably in a, in a comfortable way in the hands of Satan through his deceivers. The whole world is marching to the tune of the beat that Satan is playing. And as he gives them false promises and false hopes, they're satisfied in those things and comfortable. In our text, 
we see King Christ, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, truth himself, take on flesh and collide with false teachers, with liars. We see the collision of the deceivers with the one who's speaking the truth. This is what we're witnessing on the pages of our Bible as we read this in Luke 11. Jesus is the only hope for what we see on the news. He's the only answer. And the reason why the news drives me crazy is he's never brought up. We look at the problem and we talk about the problem and we look at solutions that can never ultimately change a person's heart, but we can never talk about the truth. The one who changes hearts and yet you and I, Christian, are the ones who are shot out into this dark world to speak Christ's words, to declare the truth so that people might wake up and realize whose arms they're in, to see the lies, to see the good shepherd who gave himself for their soul and turn to him. Don't be lulled to sleep and see this world as just different ideas and smart people talking to each other. This whole thing is a spiritual battle. And we see it. We see a collision in this text. My prayer, my goal for this sermon is two things. I pray that you can see through the hypocrisy of false teachers, that you recognize them, that you see the difference. There's millions of them out there. How are you going to know who's speaking the truth? And secondly, I pray that light would shine into your heart and expose any hypocrisy that's there. The Pharisees are not saved people. They're lost. And you may be saved, and yet the same root that causes their hypocrisy still in your sinful flesh needs to be put to death in your life and in my life. But we actually have the power to defeat sin through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, through His Word, we can be sanctified in the truth. So it's twofold. We're not just going to sit here and say, the Pharisees that are dogs. But we are going to say, recognize them. Don't be deceived by them. And then Lord, let Your light shine into my life. Let me see the hypocrisy of my heart. Because that's what this text is about. I pray that you will humbly ask God to reveal to you. Here, here's what C.S. Lewis says. 
He says, try not to, or, or, try not to think, much less speak of other sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. One of our favorite games to do is to talk about the bad ones. Because it's a false covering of sin in our own lives. This is why people love to talk about politics on both sides. There's the bad one on the other side, and we're the good ones. And when we sit here and talk, it's a form of feeling better about ourselves. And yet C.S. Lewis says, don't sit there and speak about other people's sins all day. A better theme is to look at the sins in your own life. And then he says, and if on consideration one can find no faults on one, one's own side, then cry for mercy, for this must be the most dangerous illusion. If you look in and you can't see your own sin, cry for mercy that the light of the gospel would come in and humble you and bring you to Christ. God's word kills us as it reveals sin to us, but then points us to the, the one who is eternal life, Christ. In him, we have life. So we come to this text. Jesus sits down for a meal with a Pharisee. And the thing that really stuck out to me as I was reading different commentaries one of the com uh, one of the uh, commentators come think of the word <laughs> said the thing we always need to remember when we look at Jesus, we look at his attitude, we look at his speech, this is God incarnate. If you want to know how God talks, look at how Jesus talks. If you want to know God's attitude, look at Jesus's attitude. He's perfect. He does what's right. And yet, in considering that, when we look at this, it's like, oh man, this is an awkward lunch. And we're going to see why as we consider what's at stake. So we're going to see the DNA of hypocrisy in these woes given to the Pharisees and the lawyers. The DNA of hypocrisy. We're going to see what traits hypocrisy has in these woes. These woes are announcements of damnation. Here's how he begins. He says in verse 42, but woe to you, Pharisees. Get the picture. He's sitting down at lunch. They just got upset because he didn't wash his hands. <laughs> and, and then he says, you Pharisees, you're concerned about the outside, but not what's in your heart. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The first thing we see about hypocrites 
is that they major on the minors to the neglect of the majors. Do you get that? They major on the minors to the neglect of the majors. They diligently paid their tithes of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb like dill. Have you, have you ever put dill on something? You know, if they got some dill at the store, you lay that out and try to get exactly 10% of that dill and cumin and mint and rue. And boy, no one was that careful. But they were that careful. Generally, in the Old Testament, it says they were to bring a tithe of every seed or grain. They extrapolated that into this impossible system that would you spend half your day trying to figure out what 10% of dill and mint or rue they would bring. You can read about that in Leviticus 27, uh, verses 30 through 33, if you want to see what the Old Testament commanded. They went way beyond what was required in verse 30 of Leviticus 27, every tithe of the land, whether of seed of the land or the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So they ran with that to the point where it's like, who are these people? Look at, look at how spiritual they must be. But he didn't condemn them just for doing that. What he condemned is that they spent all this time doing that and they ignored the whole of the law. Here's how Matthew records this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So in Luke, he says, the love of God, justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, you blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Here's what they would do. They'd take a cup of water and they'd be concerned or wine, maybe wine. You couldn't see a gnat that was in there. So they would take a cloth and they'd put it over their cup and they would drink through the cloth to make sure that they wouldn't swallow something unclean like a gnat because they wouldn't want to become unholy. And so while they're drinking this in this awkward way, Jesus says they do that and then they grab this cup that has a camel in it and they swallow the camel down. The weightier matters, they're, they're so blind to their hypocrisy that they focus on the little things and miss the big things. Beware of those who all they want to do is talk about the details, the little things, the ceremonies, the rituals, the fine points, fourth-tier issues of theology and never seem to center on Christ or the Gospels. It's one of the signs of a hypocrite. The reason why the Pharisees loved to do this, why it was so appetizing, is who else is doing it? As they were 
figuring out how much dill to give. They're looking around saying, no one else is doing this. No one else must love God as much as I love God. It glorified them as they looked around and looked at how they were better than other people. You can see, and, and let's, let's be honest, they kept them, I mean, they had amazing discipline, right? But what was the motivation behind it? To glorify themselves. See, God cares about the motivation of your heart. God cares about who gets the glory. Second, hypocrites love social status. Look at what he says. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They love them. In fact, they live for them. This is dead set against Christ, the one who brings the truth. Jesus that says things like this, and just to prove that the root that, uh, of this sin that the Pharisees had, his disciples had. An argument arose among them, this is in Luke 9 verse 46, among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is the disciples. Who's the greatest? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. But he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you love the recognition of people. The best seats in the synagogues were not the ones in the front row. They were the ones like this, right here. They got to sit up front and look at the congregation from their big, important seats in the synagogue. And they loved to walk through town with their long robes on. And people would say, greetings, teacher. Greetings, rabbi. They loved it. Just to stroll through and take the glory that comes from man. But Jesus says, Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. So the Pharisees loved the places of honor in banquets, Matthew 23, 6. They loved wearing long robes, Mark 12, 38. They loved being called rabbi, Matthew 23, 7. The Pharisees demonstrated the absolute opposite of true spiritual leadership. True leadership is humble, self-sacrificial service for the good of another for the glory of God. Paul actually wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1. He says, but understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of themselves. That doesn't even sound bad anymore, right? What's so bad about that? We're to be lovers of God. The glory 
go to God. But he writes to Timothy, he says they're going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Seems like the culture we live in. So hypocrites love social status. It's a good question to ask ourselves. Do I love the praise that comes from men? Do I do things that tries to project myself out so that others will give me praise and say good things about me? Now, people might say good things about you, and that's okay, but are you after it? Do you love that? Does that just taste so good for your soul that, you know, Christ isn't enough? I need to hear it from someone else. Third, hypocrites defile others while they promise cleansing. These are the most dangerous people on the face of the earth. John MacArthur says they're worse than terrorists. The Pharisees are worse than any Al-Qaeda terrorist could ever be because they can kill the body, but the Pharisees were damning souls for all eternity. But they looked good. They looked religious. They were so deceptive. He says, woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now a Pharisee is so concerned without, to not want to be defiled, so they make up these man-made rules about hand-washing before they eat, which I demonstrated a couple weeks ago how ridiculous their rules were. And yet he says, they're like unmarked graves. Now, in number 16, in the law, we read this. Whoever in the open field touches someone who has been killed with a sword who, or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days, ceremonially unclean. They would need to cleanse themselves which is pointing towards the cleansing we need in Christ that's going to come. So they were so serious about that, and so this would have cut to the heart when Jesus says, you're like Don Mark Graves. What the Pharisees would do is, if there was a grave, they'd put a big white stone up, and they'd make it white, and they'd say, no one come close, you're going to be, you'll become defiled. And he says, you want to know what you're like? You're like a grave that's put out there in the field that people are going to walk over, and there's no stone there. You're hidden. But when people come into contact with you, they become defiled. That's why they're so dangerous. That's why he says, to hell with you. Damn you. This is what you're like. This is what you're doing. In Matthew 23, 7, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They're influential evangelists. The people respected them more 
than any other in Jesus' day. They're influential evangelists seeking to live according to secondary rules. And any follower they can get will just bring glory to themselves. In Matthew 23, 15, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you're getting the weight of this. These are the people that stroll through town and everyone bows down and honors them and you're so spiritual. And Jesus says to them, when you go make a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell. This is what it looks like when deceivers that are in the hands of Satan come into contact with truth. We find out what God thinks of false teachers, of hypocrites that hide the truth from people and defile people. And we ought to pray and examine our own lives that when people come into contact with us, we don't teach them hypocrisy, but we teach them the Word of God and the Gospel. It's really easy to make a law system for people. Yeah, here's what I do. I do this, 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 and this, and here's this, 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 this. And your friend can think this is what good people do. We've got to be careful that we share the Gospel with our lives. That when we have convictions in how we live our life, We have those convictions with gospel motivations for the glory of God that we don't just make good citizens that don't know Christ and become proud in their own self-righteousness. Hypocrites defile others while they promise cleansing. At this point, one of the lawyers answered him. Now, a lawyer is not how we think of a lawyer today that is a lawyer for civil law. This would be a lawyer in the Mosaic, uh, for the Mosaic law and for the oral tradition, the traditions that the Pharisees have made up. They were the experts in the law of Moses. What they, what they did is they actually made the Pharisaical system. They looked at the law of Moses And in interpreting the law of Moses, they made endless rules and laws saying, here's what it really means to follow this. It means you have to do this and you have to do that. For example, uh, an example I read that John MacArthur gave is on the Sabbath, they said, you know, you can't work on the Sabbath. And so if you're going to carry something, you can't carry it in your right hand or your left hand. That would be working on the Sabbath. If you're going to carry something, you have to carry it on the back of your hand or you have to tie it to your hair or put it on your sandal. And see, this is a lawyer saying this is what it means to keep the Sabbath. They created this system. 
And as this lawyer's sitting there, evidently there's more Pharisees. The Pharisees are always in the plural in this text. There was lawyers that were Pharisees. All lawyers would have been Pharisees. Or there was Pharisaic lawyers, and then there was Sadducee lawyers, but this would have been a Pharisaical one because he says, when you say that to the Pharisees, don't you realize you're offending us? Now, here's the thing. The Pharisees were up here, but the lawyers were the Pharisees of the Pharisees. They were the ones that came up with the laws. They were the ones that interpreted the laws. They were the ones. And it's as if he just is saying, I realize you're offending this guy that invited you over to supper, but do you realize you're offending us lawyers? You can, you can see the utter shock of how unusual this would have been. And it's, you almost can't help but chuckle as you read Jesus' response. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. Oh yeah, I forgot about you. <laughs> okay, I'm offending you. Yeah, okay, now let me give you three woes. I gave the Pharisees three woes. Now let me give you yours. And here we see that hypocrites are unwilling to do what they require of others. And even a better way to say it is not only unwilling, but unable. Look at verse 46. He said, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with your fingers. You don't even touch them. The lawyers were supposed to be experts in the law and yet, they never did the law. In fact, they couldn't. God's law, God's perfect law, rightly interpreted, gives nobody power to keep it. This is the gospel, right? This is what Paul teaches in Romans, right? That by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law was given to shut man up, to make man put his hand over his mouth, to show man that he can't live up to the standards of God. They couldn't lift the burdens they put on other people. They didn't have life. It takes spiritual life to fulfill the law of God. And they can't give it to someone else. They themselves don't have the power to keep the law. We need life to come. We need someone who can give spiritual life to people who are spiritually dead. It's the good news of the gospel. It's good to know what God's standards are. That reflects His glory. But if I can't keep it, and I fall terribly short, it becomes bad news because now judgment's going to come on me. But Christ came, the only human being that ever fulfilled the law, that lived a perfect life. He never sinned so that you can have spiritual life, not from the law, but from grace. In fact, in Acts 15, the early church was debating, you know, some Pharisees that were trusting Christ, evidently, wanted to say that 
you had to also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you wanted to be saved. But here's what Peter says to them. Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, now here's what, it, here's what Christians believe, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Do you feel the good news of the gospel? We feel that we're going to be saved, not by keeping the law of Moses, because we're trusting in the one who kept the law of Moses and died in our place. We believe we're saved by grace, through faith, clinging to him. Fifth, hypocrites claim to love those whom they hate. Here's what makes them so dangerous. You might love Jesus, and they'll say they love Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone maybe reading a book that I know the author teaches a false gospel, but all throughout the book, they talk about loving Jesus. And that's why it's so deceptive. That's why it's so hard. They claim one thing, but they actually love another thing. He says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So a Pharisee kind of felt guilty because they looked back at their heritage and they said, man, <laughs> all of our fathers... God sent prophets to speak the word of God to us. And you want to know what all of our fathers did? They killed the prophets. I said, man, this kind of makes us look bad. So we're going to start a new thing. It's going to be this program called Decorating the Tombs of the Prophets to show everyone that we're not as bad as our fathers were. So they would go to the tombs of the prophets and they would decorate them and I don't know how they decorate them but they would make them look fancy and they would say we're sorry our fathers were evil and Jesus says to them you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed he's saying you think you're trying to separate yourself from it in an ironic way you're taking part in it and then he says so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now, there's no verse in the Old Testament that says this. Another way to translate this would be God. God says, <laughs> through Christ, he prophesies that he's going to send New Testament prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute. This is in the future. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Zechariah, evidently the last martyr in the Old Testament, Abel being the first, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it'll be required of this generation 
It's helpful to look at Matthew 23, 29. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, here's what they would say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood with the prophets. Now, what's the irony? You see the irony, right? We're not like our fathers. The greatest prophet that ever lived was right in front of them. And they had just said, not many verses before, that he does what he does by the power of Satan. And we see at the end of this text, they're plotting to kill him. Plotting to get him. And he says, so as you go decorate those tombs, in a very ironic way, you think you're separating yourselves from the prophets, you're filling up the wickedness of your father's. He's saying all the judgment that's deserved for every godly person that's been martyred has filled up to the fullest it can get and it's going to come down on you. wasn't very much long later and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Thousands killed, scattered all throughout. Horrible judgment came upon them. Not even talking, considering the eternal judgment that they're going to bear for being false teachers. Now someone might say, man, this sounds pretty harsh. Like, we can't talk like this. Well, if the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one, let's thank God that Christ came and hit lies head on and showed us what truth really is. And let's be careful that we don't become, for in, the, in the name of love, of course, more loving than Christ, right? This is what we can do. There can be false teachers in our midst and we can kind of say, oh, they're pretty good. They, they say they love Jesus. Yeah, but look at verse 52. He says, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge and you to yourself, are, and, and you did not enter yourselves, you, and you hindered those who were entering. It's the worst thing that could ever be said about a teacher, a spiritual teacher. You've taken the key of knowledge and you've thrown it away. You've gotten rid of it. You destroyed it. And you're telling people that you're going to take them to the promised land and you yourselves aren't even entering yourselves. That's what every false teacher does. Anyone that does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners are saved by grace and not by works. Works are evidence of the new birth that God does in a sinner's heart when they trust Christ. What you and I need, what the whole world needs, is a new heart. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. You make fleshly rules. It's all of the flesh. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. What we all need is the grace of God. The grace of God's been given us in the person of Jesus Christ.
He's the only one that can rescue us from our hypocrisy. Here's the freedom of the gospel. I don't have to pretend like I'm better than I really am. As your pastor, you can know me as a sinner. You can know me as one who's fighting the fight of faith, struggling. You can know me as a sinner saved by grace. And I don't have to hide or pretend. It's freedom. You get to admit who and what you are and point to your great Savior. And when we do that, we glorify Christ. If you put on your Sunday best, if you pretend like you're someone different than you really are on Facebook, if you pretend like your family doesn't struggle like every other family struggles, if you pretend like you don't struggle with selfishness, unbelief, and all those things, it's you that gets the glory when people look at you and say, man, you're godly. But when you're real, and you can say, man, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's my only hope is in Christ. God gets all the glory. Christ gets all the glory. And that's the only good news in the world is the message that Christ brought that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him Father, thank you that Jesus loved the Pharisees enough that while they were still living, he pointed out the hypocrisy. This is a loving warning that if they don't repent, they will be damned. Father, I pray that you would humble us all, that we would all realize our only hope is mercy found in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we confess that we need a miracle done in our heart. We need our heart of stone taken out. We need a heart of flesh. We need the Holy Spirit put into our life. We were spiritually dead. We need spiritual life, Father. God, I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.